So we're in Samuel together. So kids, let me dismiss the children for Children's Church. For the rest of us, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's a long passage of Scripture that we'll be studying this morning. So uh, rather than go through it as we go through the text, I'm going to read to you the story so you can think it through and, and, and ponder it as we open the Word and proclaim it. 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to go through chapter 10, verse 1, and you'll see why we'll do that. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Bible's in the back. If you don't have one, please grab one. And, and let me tell you, I'm not putting up all the verses on the screen. I'll put some up, but if you don't have a Bible, please grab a Bible. Uh, if you want to go now, go grab one. If not, uh, if you don't have one, again, take it with you. Hear the word of God. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerorah, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, some names for you if you're having children, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkey. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, Passed through the land of Shalasha, but they did not find them. They went through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cares, cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious or worried about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so let's go up there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks are gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, here, have with me a quarter, a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Verse 9, formerly in Israel... When a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called the seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met, a young, met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? It's poetry. Didn't <laughs> they answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now hurry, go up, and you'll meet him immediately. So went up to the city. As they entered the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them and his way to the high place. Verse 15. Now the day before... Saul came to the Lord and revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this day, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince or leader over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here's the man I spoke to you. He is the one who will restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered to Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place. For today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and tell you, I'll tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, 
that were lost three days ago? Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And from whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your house, father's house? Saul answered him, I am, not, am I not a Benjamin, a Benjaminite, from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them to the hall, gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were there about 30 persons. Verse 23, and Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down and went to sleep. Then, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose. Both he and Samuel went out to the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servants to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself, that I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord appointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. If you don't have that last verse in your Bible translation, uh, we'll get to that when we get to that. I'll explain. The people of God have settled in the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They got complacent, they got rebellious. After being disciplined by the Lord, they cry out. God hears their cry, sends them a judge. The judge leads them back into the covenant relationship with the Lord. This went round and round. They were stiff-necked people. They were hard-headed folks. I could relate to that and didn't even get started yet. At the time, it says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But God, we've been talking about, is doing something great in Israel. God is doing something great. Samuel was born to a barren woman named Hannah. He was a faithful man who is now old. And during his lifetime, he, as he served in the temple in Shiloh, he saw Eli, or at least he knew about Eli, the high priest, who fell backwards, you remember, and broke his neck and died. And he was around when Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were abusive men and disregarded the will and the ways and the word of God, was judged and killed in battle. If you remember chapters 4 through 7, excuse me, 4 through 6, the people were crushed by the Philistines. They failed, to, they failed to seek the face of God. They failed to seek the word of God from the man of God and call out to God for help. Rather, they brought out the Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot, some sort of lucky charm, and they were crushed. If you remember, Samuel is instrumental in chapter 7 where he brought the people into, uh, back into a renewed covenant relationship through repentance, renewal, and worship. Last week at chapter 8, there was a major transition. Saul, excuse me, Samuel now is fading out of the story. Up to now, he's the main character. He's the last judge of Israel. He, he was a, a prophet. He was a priest. But now, chapter 8, things are changing 
for, from a, remember we talked about it, from a theocracy, a people ruled by, by God to a, to a monarchy, a people ruled by an earthly king. But last week, unfortunately, we saw that Israel was asking for a king, for their own king, the man of their choosing, not the man of God's choosing. First Samuel chapter 8, they, a judge that will be like all the other people, they will, a judge that will judge them, excuse me, a king that will judge them, and a king that will go out and fight their own battles. We spent time last week talking about idolatry and talking about worshiping things. Even though a king was a good thing, he wasn't the king God had chosen for Israel. Deuteronomy 17 lays out the qualifications of that king. And they rebelled and turned their back and worshiped falsely idolatry. And now in chapter 9, we're going to see that God is granting them their first king. His name is Saul. Hebrew means asked of God or, or what has been asked for. And God gives us, we learned this last time, God gives us sometimes what we ask for and keep asking for and it can turn out to be not very good. It could actually be his discipline and teaching us, his way of teaching us a very valuable lesson. And Saul will be that king. Saul's going to teach them a lesson. Now Saul isn't all bad, although it ends well. It actually begins well. It's like the movie we talked about the, before, The Prince's Bride. Not mostly dead. He's only partly dead. He's halfway alive. Well, Saul is mostly bad, but not totally bad. He, he, he can be rather generous and courageous. And he, he does begin with, with obeying the will of God, but then he becomes impulsive. And he, and he becomes violent and hypocritical and, and disobedient to God. And things don't go well. But at first, things aren't that bad. And it reminds me, and it should remind us, of God's mercy and God's love and God's grace. So I just want to say before we get into the text, that there are times that we ourselves don't get what the consequences of our stupidity deserves. Many times, by God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy, he even softens the consequences of our sin. And that's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? The debt owed to God for our sins, the righteous wrath we merit, the consequences we deserved all poured out on Jesus, our substitute, who takes our place, dies in our our place, takes the the consequences of our cosmic treason upon himself. And his perfect righteousness is then imputed and counted toward us. Family, therefore, therefore, because of the gospel, Remember this, because of the gospel, you and I can always, always, always say, no matter how bad things are going, no matter what's happening in my life, it's never as bad as it could be if you trusted in Christ. Sin washed away, wrath absorbed, reconciled relationship with God for eternity. To God be the glory. Our scripture lesson Two major lenses through our lesson. Here's just a simple outline. The ordinary occasions in God's providence. This this story is all about the providence of God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. The ordinary occasion and then the extraordinary ending in God's providence. We see Saul being anointed at the end in chapter 10, verse 1. The ordinary occasions in God's providence. You know, many of us live ordinary lives, right? Unless you're here and you're Batman and you haven't told anybody, we live ordinary lives. And the narrator in this story, which I read to you, seems to stress the 
ordinariness of life and that God is pleased and God is working in the ordinary occasions of life. Notice the chapter begins in chapter 9, verse 1, just like chapter 1, verse 1. It's a way the, the narrator is saying there's a new section coming up. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, There was a certain man of Ramathah, Sophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, you remember the story, Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elu, son of Tahud, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Kind of gives a, a description. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Stories opening up. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamite, or from Benjamin, whose name was Kish, whose, son, whose name was Kish. He's the son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Zechorath, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. We kind of see the giving description of these two men. There's actually some similarities in the family. Uh, both of them give a family description. Both of them come from the same region. Both Samuel and Saul start out in obscurity and become to this, to this place of national prominence. Both names have an interesting Hebrew verb, meaning requested. Yet the narrator is quick to tell us that Samuel, excuse me, Saul, unlike Samuel, is buff. I don't know if they use that word anymore. Maybe I'm antiquated. But, but he's buff. He's handsome. He's tall. He comes from a good stock. Actually, the ESV, wealthy family, the Hebrew phrase could mean mighty valor or, or man of standing, a man of courage, a man of military skill. And because his family owns donkeys and servants, he, he comes from an influential family. Look at verse 2. He was a handsome man, Saul was. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So he won Mr. Israel every year. He's on the calendars of the, of the firefighters. You ladies know what I'm talking about. Get your head out of the gutter. Anyway, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, I read that and I thought, he has a big head. From his shoulders up. So, I mean, from the shoulder. No, that's not what it means. It means that he's taller than everybody else. Now watch God in action. He says, it was a regular day on the farm. Now I didn't grow up on a farm. There was no regular day for me on a farm. But I worked at a place that had a farm in a correctional facility. And it was not uncommon for the cows or the bulls to break loose. You got to running down 9W. On Kish's farm here, there were donkeys that broke loose and made a run for it. Donkeys are expensive animals. That's why he sells Kish, verse 3, the father of Samuel, excuse me, the father of Saul, Kish, tells his son, listen, son, Saul, go grab one of the servants and go look for the donkeys. The animals just happened to escape and the right servant just happened to be chosen. We'll see that in a minute. And they passed through these different hill towns, Ephraim and and no donkeys, they come to the land of Zuf, they can't find anything. Finally, Samuel's like, listen, uh, we need to go back because my dad's probably really worried about us. He ain't going to be worried about the donkeys as much as he's worried about me. And it just so happens that the servant knows that he's with Saul. The servant knows about a man of God that can help them that just happens to be in the city on the day in which they were there. Verse 6. Behold, there's a man... Right, verse 6, but there is a man of God in this city and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let's go there. Perhaps he could tell us, you know, what's going on and what way we should go. And obviously Saul uh, was a young man taught not to, to visit anyone empty-handed or maybe the prophets were charging at the fee, but he's like, listen, we can't go because we got nothing to bring to the man. 
and the servant just happens to pull a quarter out of his pocket and says, I got this shekel of silver we could give to the prophet or, or the seer, as they were called before. And Saul says to him in verse 10, all right, well said. That was pretty good. Good trick. Pull that quarter right out. Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, what's going on here? Ordinary occasions, God's providence, God's sovereignty is unfolding. So I thought, you know what? It would probably be a good idea to just give you a, some terms. We've talked about this before, but I just want to refresh your mind. What does it mean by sovereignty? What does it mean by providence? So there's my definition. I probably took it from somewhere. It's probably not mine. Haven't had an original thought in my life. God has the power, omnipotent power, right and authority to govern all things for his own wise and holy purposes. Sovereignty. Providence, things that are going on, is the continuous work activity by which God preserves, provides, manages, and maintains his creation working all things out in the wise and eternal plans and purposes he intended for our good and ultimately for his glory. Providence. And yes, Scripture teaches us that in the providence of God, he'll even will work through the stupid decisions that man makes, sinful decisions that man makes, and donkeys that are on the root loose. God is still provident and sovereign over it. In the grand narrative of Samuel God is preparing the way. In the grand narrative, God is preparing a way for the Christ to come through the kings of Israel. In God's good and holy sovereign providence, he is preparing a whole line of kings through which the king of kings and the Lord of lords will come. His name is Jesus. On a lesser scale, God is working providentially and sovereignly through the life of Saul and these donkeys and Samuel. The story should remind us, family, of the amazing things, the amazing work of Almighty God in the ordinary details of your life, ordinary details of my life. First, we see Saul born into this family. Maybe you've been brought into a family. Maybe you've been born into a family. You know, those choices were not yours, but they are by the providential care of God. Maybe you don't even like the family you're in. I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, it is the providential care of God. Acts 17, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of which they're dwelling places. God placed you and your family in your family for a reason. He's, he's using the circumstances to bring about his purposes for your life, even times when you are chasing after donkeys. And it seems like a fruitless effort it's fruitless here in this story. Okay, maybe not runaway donkeys, but maybe, maybe there's a job. Maybe there's a family struggle. Maybe there's a wayward child, an unfaithful spouse, a bad doctor's report, family, nothing. Nothing, nothing is out of control. Nothing is not being orchestrated in one way or another by God. Wayne Grudem has a wonderful, he's a, a, got a great book on systematic theology. And he talks about how God's sovereignty and man's choices. And he, and, he, and he says this, and putting together two biblical principles of Scripture. He says, God causes all things that happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices. Choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held accountable. 
exactly how God combines his providential control, I'd say also his sovereign control, with our willing and significant choices. Scripture does not explain that to us. Rather than deny one aspect or the other, we should accept both and attempt to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture. God is sovereign, man is responsible. God is working all things out according to his plans and purposes, and man is making choices that he is responsible for. Well, how does that all come together? I don't know, but I I believe what the scriptures teach us. And that's something that we should rest in and believe on. Now, I want to read a story to you. I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to tell you right now, you know me, many of you have been here for a long time. I'm not a crier, but I can't get through this story, and I was all alone. So I'm going to try to get through this story. True story, 1948, January 10th, Reader's Digest. Two years after the Second World War, a man by the name of Marcel Sternberger took a train in Brooklyn subway. Usually he takes a different line, but he scheduled change. He wanted to visit a sick friend in that morning, and he stepped into a, a very packed train in Brooklyn. And suddenly, when he got there, a man jumped from his seat and left the train, and Sternberger took the vacant seat. He was sitting next to a man who was reading a Hungarian newspaper. Sternberger was from Hungary. He was not an outgoing man, but he felt compelled to talk to this man in Hungarian. And he said to him in Hungarian, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper. And the man was surprised he spoke his language. And they began to chat. The man he was talking to was a man by the name of, last name was Paskin, P-A-S-K-I-N. And he began to share with this gentleman, Sternberger, his story. He said when the war was started, he was a student, a law student, but he was enlisted in a labor battalion and was was sent to Ukraine. While he was in Ukraine, he was uh, captured by the Russians and was put to work burying burying the dead uh, German dead. After the war was over, he traveled hundreds of miles on foot back to his home in Depresin, Hungary, to discover that his entire family had been gone. Strangers were living now in the apartment in which he lived with his wife. He found some old friends and they said, you know what, not good. Your family was taken to Auschwitz and they were presumed dead in the gas chambers. Shocked, devastated, he left Hungary and migrated and found himself in the United States in October 1947. As Sternberger listened to this man's incredible story, somehow it seemed familiar and suddenly it dawned on him, only recently he met a young woman in a home of friends who had also been from Debrecen, She had been taken to Auschwitz and then transferred to work in the German munition factory. All her families were killed in the gas chambers. After the Americans had liberated the camp, they brought it to New York on the first boatload of displaced persons. And Sternberger had been stirred by her story when he was told that, and he took down her name and her phone number. He couldn't imagine at all. There was nothing about it. It was just a strange coincidence. But when the train reached a stop, he turned to his friend Pask and he says, Is your wife named Bella? His face went pale. He said, yes, how do you know? Steinberger fumbled for the dress. He said, was your wife's name, what, no, was your first name Bella? The man said, yes. He said, was your wife named Mira? And he looked pale, and he was going to pass out, and he said, yes, yes. Steinberger suggested that he get off the next stop without explanation, went to a phone booth. Paskin stood there like a, a just in, 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 unbelievable. He makes a phone call. He calls Mira Paskin on, on the line. Steinbrenner reminded her of the recent conversation they had, and without explaining, Sternberger asked where Mira had lived. She gave him the address. Sternberger turned to Bella Paskin and said, did your wife and you live on such and such a street? Yes, Bella explained as he trembled. He handed Bella the phone saying, here, take this phone and talk to your wife. 
when Bella, which is the man, Paskin realized he was speaking to his wife, he began to cry uncontrollably. Sternberger sent them by taxi to be reunited with his wife. Though he thought, both thought they were dead. Now halfway across the country, they're reunited. Now, what's interesting is Reader's Digest, some of you may not even know that. I don't even know if it's in circulation anymore. But this is what they wrote. Skeptical persons would no doubt attribute the events of that afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend and hence take a subway line which he never had before? Was it a chance that caused a man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it a chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance, or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon, end quote? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe in the providence of God? If so, then you and I can rest in the truth. We can rest in the reality that there is no such things as happenstance. Absolutely everything falls beneath the plan and control and overruling of God. It doesn't get any more ordinary than riding a train or looking for donkeys. Yet God is at work. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Isaiah 46, I am God, there is no other. I am the Lord, none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purposes. Psalm 115, our God is in heaven, he does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of him who works what? All things according to the counsel of his will. Some say, well, if, if you believe in the sovereignty, if you believe in the providence of God, then you were just mere robots on this world. Really? Was it robotic that Saul was born into that family? Was it robotic that the donkeys broke loose and ran away? Was it robotic that Saul picked a servant who knew about the man of God? God is at work in the occasions of ordinariness in your life and in my life. Now, verses 11 through 14. The servant goes up to the city. It just happened to meet some young ladies coming down. It just happened to know where the prophet is. They just happened to know his itinerary for the day. Saul heads up to the high place. The people are sacrificing there. They're waiting for the prophet to come so that they can bless he can bless the sacrifice. Pick up at verse 14. Saul and the servant go up to the city. They're entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. It just happened to be that he's back in town. The land of Zuf, where they are, is very close to Ramah, where Samuel lived. Although he did his circuitry, we'd know. But it happened to be he's back in town. Saul has been looking for his donkeys for how many days? Three. If they were there the day early, they would have been missed them. If they came the day later, they would have missed them. They came on that specific day. God's timing is perfect. Ordinary, yet extraordinary, is it not? But if we're honest, let's come clean. We don't always like the timing of God. Come on. 
Lord, answer this prayer today. Do you see what's going on? I need your help now. Sometimes, instead of trusting him in the outcome, we get up in the middle of the movie because we don't like the movie. We don't wait to the end. God's sovereignty, God's providence knows the beginning and the end, he says in Isaiah. We just want to walk out. We can't see the whole picture, but he does. And he's asking us to trust him. God's timing is first and foremost for his own glory. And his promise, listen, in his sovereignty and in his providence, for his glory, his promise to those who love God and are called according to his purposes is that he'll work out all things together for the good. That's not my promise. I can't do that. We got to wait till the movie's over. It may not be into eternity. But God's timing is always perfect. Now look with me at verse 15 and 17. Verses 15 and 17, you could leave those verses out, go from 14 to 18. But the narrator puts that in. What he does is he's peeling back the ordinary and we're looking at the extraordinary. It's really an interruption in in a way, in a story. The hinge pinch of the whole narrative. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow at this time, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. We read earlier in chapter 9 that it was Kish who sent his son. Now we see in that ordinary decision, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people. Their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw, verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul... The Lord told him, here's the man. Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He is the one who will restrain my people. The ordinariness is very much under God's direction and providence. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And now the prophet now knows who will get this anointing, who will be the prince or better translation leader over Israel. It's it's interesting you could talk about it in community groups, uh, that God does not call him king at first, the different Hebrew word. He calls him leader, prince, who will become king. God tells Samuel that he will, Saul will save his people. Look what it says. And he will restrain, God, Samuel will restrain my people. Some of you have govern or rule in your translations. And, and, and that could mean two things. Samuel will, will restrain God's people in, in a negative way. He will restrain them because God has blessings for Israel and, and Samuel will, excuse me, Saul will somehow not allow that to happen because of his rebellion. It's a negative restraining. Some other commentaries believe it's a positive restraining. We see in the beginning of Saul's life as king, things go well, and that Saul will re- restrain them in a sense, keep Israel from sinning, at least for a season, against the Lord. That kind of restraining in a positive sense. I kind of look at it as a positive sense because of what happens next. And therefore, I believe that it's God's mercy. It's God's mercy upon Israel to send, at this time, Saul. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, writes this. Israel's rejection does not paralyze Yahweh, God's providence. Although Yahweh sees Israel's idolatry in her cry for a king, we saw it last week, he also hears her distress in her cry for relief. Israel's stupidity cannot wither Yahweh's compassion. No. 
We must not trivialize Israel's sin, but neither dare we minimize Yahweh's mercy. These foolish, stubborn people do not cease to be objects of Yahweh's compassion. You could put my name in there. Let no sin be glossed over. Let no one excuse is God denying wickedness. But surely, if you are a child of God, you rejoice to see that your God is mulish on mercy, that your sin does not dry up the fountain of his compassion, that his pity refused to let go of his people. End quote. And praise God for that. The psalmist says, as the height, as the height of heaven above earth, so strong is his faithfulness. His faithful love for those who fear him. Isn't that just like the character of God, though? Isn't that just like the character of God? He sends restraints. Some of you are married, and you could be thankful because you'd be playing video games 24-7. Or, or maybe you're married, and you now don't have to build an extension to your home for all the shoes you want to buy. I'm not really sure. But some of you have friends, and you have families and close friends and close relatives that speak into your life, their restraints. Where would you be if God did not send restraints in our life? Saul is actually going to make Israel look good for a moment. He's a restraint. And in verse 18 through 24, Saul meets Samuel at the gate. He doesn't recognize him at first, and he tells him, listen... In the morning, I'm going to tell you all that's on your mind, verse 19. And it's very interesting that Saul sees Samuel, who the the Bible says is a prophet of God. All of Israel knows him, and he doesn't know him. Verse 19, verse 20. He says, but for the donkeys, I know you're looking for donkeys. Lost three days ago. Don't worry about it. They've been found. In other words, Samuel is is a prophet and kind of authenticating his prophetic ministry right there. I know where they are. They've been found. Don't worry about it. And from, look what it says in verse 20. And from whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? In other words, Israel is desiring for you. I don't know if there's a little sarcasm like this is the guy they picked. I don't know. I think maybe Samuel is settled with what God's will is possibly. And he's saying, listen, all of Israel wants you, desires you. Honor's coming to you. You don't understand it. In verse 21, am I the smallest? I'm the least of all the tribes. I'm the humblest of all there is. Back in Judges, right before this period, the Benjamin tribe was almost desecrated, decimated in battle. They were known for their, for their corruption, inhospitality, rape, murder. And he's like, you know, you're saying that comes to me? Saul doesn't have a clue what's going on. But Samuel moves forward. He's a prophet of God. He listens to the voice of God. He makes reservations for him to be at this honored meal, the sacrificial meal. And both men sit down together. There's about 30 people there. They're at the high place. They're having this meal. In verse 23, he turns to the cook and he says, go get the stuff I told you to put aside. The leg that, you know, you want the leg. The leg and everything on it. Now, I don't know why they wanted a leg. I would have chose prime rib. But they get the leg. Remember, this is a special piece of meat that's been hidden from him. This is around the sacrifices. It could have very been, and I think it was, the piece of meat that belonged to the priest. And here, Samuel is giving it to Saul. If only we could see Saul's face, right? We're looking for donkeys. I got this servant. We're searching donkeys here, donkeys. We don't know where it is. All of a sudden, we find ourselves at a sacrifice, at the head of the table, eating the choice food, and meeting and having food with the prophet of God. Like things turned really fast for Samuel, excuse me, Saul. 
And what do you do after a good meal? Look at verse 25. You go to bed. All right, I'm going to take you to the high roof back in Israel, even today in, in, in that part of the country. There's, there's flat roofs. People would be hot out, and people would, would sit and sleep up on the rooftop. Okay? In verse 27. Well, verse 26. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof. Hey, get up. Saul arose. Both he and Samuel went out to the street. Verse 27. They were gathering in the outskirts of the city. Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant... To pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop. Stop right here yourself for a while. That I may make known to you the word of God. Chapter ends. Like, really? (laughs) It's man-made. Chapters and verses are man-made. Not a really good place. I don't think that was thought out very well. Ordinary events of Saul. Three days later, (laughs) they have a very extraordinary uh, ending to the story. The word of God is coming to Samuel's from Samuel to Saul chapter 10 verse 1 then Samuel took a flask of oil poured it on his head kissed him and said has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies follow the story The elders and the people want a king. They want a king like all the other nations have. They want someone that will fight their battles. They want the one that they choose. That's what Saul is. Son of Kish in God's sovereignty and providence. Outwardly, he's impressive. I mean, look how strong he is. Look how mighty he is. Look at the valor, family he comes from. But we'll learn that God does not look at the heart. God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance of man. He didn't even even know the prophet of God. It was a servant that had to lead him. Saul fails to recognize, but someone may ask, why would God choose him in the first place, knowing that he will crash and burn at the end? The anointing of Saul as the first king of Israel was a decision born out of idolatry. A desire of the people to choose whom they wanted. Remember what we said, be careful what you ask for. God will give you the desires to teach you a lesson and trust in him. Now, if you have an NIV, a New American Standard, that last part of that verse is not in there. And the reason is that the ESV uses what's called a Septuagint. I don't want to get into this too much just so you know. There's NIV, excuse me, the ESV uh, and the RSV used what Septuagint. It is the Greek Old Testament as their guide. And uh, the, the King James or the New American Standard used the Mesoratic text, the, the Hebrew text. And um, it depends on what text they're using it from, whether you have that verse or not. And don't, don't be alarmed. Um, there are like other uh, very minor uncertainties from, from scribal errors. Uh, the reliability of the manuscript is not hindered. Um, even when they don't agree, they, they really do agree. Look at verse 16. A man from the land of Benjamin will come to be prince of my people Israel. He will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. And what you have in the Septuagint, which is the longer version, in verse 20 of 10, verse 1, shall reign over the people of the Lord. You will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. It says the same thing. So if you don't have it, it should be in a footnote. I believe the Septuagint is right because it leads right into chapter 10, verse 2. We'll talk about that uh, next week. Sorry for that 
but I know some of you are like, hey, it's not in my Bible. You're using a Masoretic. It's two different texts, okay? Anyway, Saul is anointing Samuel. That's, Samuel is anointing Saul. I've got to get that right. Samuel is anointing Saul. Some of you hear anointing. There's an anointing going on, and right away you think of the Kasmaniac Arabic, uh, aerobic classes, right? There's an anointing, this big, big guy, no neck, rings everywhere, dancing all around with a microphone. That's not what anointing means, just so you know. Actually, it literally means anointing literally meant to apply something to something else. It would, it would be used of a lotion applied on a sick horse or grease on a, on a yoke band with oxen, even painting of a house. It's an anointing. Uh, in religious circles, it would be used to, to consecrate furniture in the tabernacle. But most importantly, when the word anointed is used, it is a ceremonial induction for the leadership of Israel to the priest, the prophet, and the king. Up to this point, though, only the priests have been anointed. And now Samuel is anointing Saul as king of Israel. And the anointing is the, is the symbolic truth, or it's a symbolic way in which the person is consecrated. It's symbolic of consecration. It's symbolic of enabling. It's a, 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 a look, a, a, kind of like an empowering of the Holy Spirit. It is an outward symbol of a consecration and empowering of the Spirit of God. And notice our text, though. It's very important. Samuel anoints Saul's head with oil as a consecration and empowering. But notice, it is the Lord who anointed Saul as leader over his covenant people. Samuel acts as God's representative. And prior to that, again, only the priest. But now, the, the theocracy, people ruled by God, now it's just changing to the monarchy. And we see not only priests being anointed, but now we see a king being anointed. Family, there are ordinary circumstances in our lives. There are ordinary occasions in our lives that does not appear to have the special scriptural anointing. No one's going to be king of Israel in this room. But family, I don't want us to miss that even because in, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of interruptions and discouragement and, and hindrances and ways you're just running in circles looking for donkeys, something bigger going on. And your story of how God rescued you becomes part of his story and has meaning when you are not just looking out for your own personal story. His providential working in our life is, much, is far much more than this material world has to offer. As believers, we can be sure, you and I can be sure that the sovereign providential care of God brings my personal story, our collective stories of what God is doing, and brings them into the one true story. And that is the gospel, the story of redemption. We too are part of God's kingdom. His story, his glory, his, his final plan for the ages is something much greater than you and me. You, you may feel like you're out just looking for donkeys, but God is building a kingdom and you never know what God is using in your life and the actions he's doing for his glory. God is at work. God is at work in ordinary occasions in your life that will culminate, culminate in extraordinary endings for his glory is our joy. Let me end it this way. There was another time. 
there was another time in Israel, in ancient Israel, when the, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, in the ordinary occurrences, proves to be a special work of extraordinary endings. God will anoint a king, but not just a king, he will be the king of kings. In fact, the story of Jesus, there's even a search for a donkey. It wasn't lost, but it was found. Jesus sends his disciples to go out and to find one, bring it to him so that he can be brought into Jerusalem on a donkey. He, he chose that to be the sign that he is the chosen eternal son of God in the lineage of King David, God's perfect timing of a prophecy 500 years earlier. This is what it says in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout Daughter of Jerusalem, see your king, the king of kings, comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. Listen, the providence, the sovereignty of God's hand in ordinary occasions, even on Roman crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The king of kings dies a brutal death on a Roman cross. Something that was rather ordinary in those days and with an extraordinary ending. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Jesus rises and conquers sin, death, hell, and the grave. Listen, listen to this last verse. Let me, let me pull it up for you. I think I have it. I didn't do, yeah. Listen, listen to this. Peter and John are, are captured, arrested, told and warned, don't talk about Jesus anymore, particularly the resurrection from the dead. And this is what it says, that when they got back around their people, they prayed. This is their prayer. This is Peter and John's prayer in the New Testament. Listen to this prayer of everything we've been talking about in Samuel. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, whom through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? They're going to kill Jesus. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against who? The Lord and against his anointed. The Greek word Christos, Christ. Anointed Hebrew, Messiah. They prayed that he's the one who was consecrated. He was the one that was empowered. He was the one filled of the Holy Spirit. It was that Christ that it says, the city gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and Jews, that's everybody in the world, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see what he's saying? You're sovereign, that's wicked. Your providential care, you allowed this to happen according to your promises and your providential hand. And now we see that the most evil sin of the universe, murdering the spotless Son of God, the God-man was done by the sovereign providence of the Father in what appeared to be an ordinary occasion. Family, Jesus is the true and better and final prophet, priest, and king. He doesn't come to save us from our earthly enemies, from the Philistines. He comes and he is anointed and he is crushed for our sins. And God orchestrated it all so that he can declare his glory, his infinite value, his immeasurable worth on the hill called Calvary. 
And my hope and prayer for you this morning is that you see the beauty of Christ. His, his substitutionary atoning death, resurrection from the grave, and worship him as the king of kings. Not a king to go to a throne, but a king that goes to a cross. Who conquered, not worldly enemies, but sin death and hell. And that is exactly what this table represents for us as we go to communion. It represents the king of kings, the anointed king who was crushed and God gave him up for us as a sacrifice. The bread represents his body that was broken. The blood represents the blood that was shed. And it is not me inviting you to the table. It's Jesus inviting you to this table to be strengthened in grace and mercy as you remember his body that was broken. It is his spirit that will meet you here. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, come to the table. The band's going to play. We're going to confess and repent of our sins. Then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as the bread is taken and remember his body as the blood, the cup that was shed for him. And if you're not a Christian and just sing, we want to meet with you. We're glad you're here. We'll keep coming back. But this table is for the family of God. Not kings, but anyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Thank you that in the everyday things of life, you are working all things out for your glory. Father, thank you that our story of salvation, that our story of of what you're doing in our life is part of a greater story, your story, your glory. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus, the anointed king, the consecrated one who lived a perfect life, to die in our place, to be crucified on our behalf. And although it looked like the world had conquered, you, Lord, are sovereign. It is your providential care that gave Jesus up, that was crucified, all according to your plans and purposes. And Father, if you can do that, we can trust you in our life, our everyday life. Help us to worship you now as we take communion together. Remembering his Your body, Lord Jesus, that was broken and the blood that was shed for us.